Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Adam McBride, a popular podcaster and NFT archaeologist, among many other things. We will discuss his book and how he became an NFT ape. So welcome to the show, Adam. Oh man, it's great to be here. I'm really excited to have you on because I've been following really avidly uh, your own project in kind of documenting what is sort of the beginnings, as it were, of of NFT history as you participate in it as an important player. Uh, but for listeners who might not be as familiar with the space, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about yourself, who you are, or what your background is like. Sure. Well, I mean, NFTs really happened almost as a happy accident for me. Um, I've, I was very interested in crypto when it, it originally happened with Bitcoin. Uh, when I heard about crypto, people always ask in the crypto space, when did you hear about Bitcoin? Well, I heard about Bitcoin at $32, right? It's easier just to lay a dollar amount on it, right? Um, I heard about Bitcoin at $32, had no idea what to do or how to do anything. Um, and people say, well, aren't you disappointed with yourself that you didn't buy at 32 And my brain says, absolutely not, because I would have sold at 300 Right. I would that I'm I'm traditional Wall Street guy. When I graduated college, I went on working on the board of trade in Chicago. Right. My mindset is very much take profits. Um, you know, I would have never held Bitcoin to sixty thousand dollars. That was that's literally an impossibility. Um, but that got me excited about it. And I think everybody who was in the crypto or, or got into crypto uh got very excited by kind of that first run of of Bitcoin. Um and it wasn't really till later that I truly understood what Bitcoin meant to our world. Uh, this idea of taking money and making money distributed across a large group of people who have control over it rather than an institution that we kind of anoint either a king or a, uh, a fed or whoever as in charge of the money uh, is a big deal. It, it's, it's literally as big a deal in the history of our world as has ever been. So it's as, I look at it as as big as the printing press. It's there, right? It's right there. Um, so And that didn't really occur to me until much later, and I learned a lot more. Um, and then in 2017, really when the ICO booms were happening, um, I've had businesses my whole life, and I was seeing what people were raising on literally a white paper, like a three-page paper, and they were raising $20 million over a weekend. And I just was absolutely like, oh my God, I have to do this. Um, I have to be involved in somewhere or the other because my business brain is like, what do I want to raise money for? What projects do I want to build? You know? And so I, I jumped in from a, pers- from a, like a technical perspective um, and learned how to make coins. My feeling was what I can do is create a business around creating coins and then hook in with teams who want to have a money raise and I'll be the technical guy who can build coins for them. So I was looking at it from that perspective. Uh, I tried it. I built a website around it. I marketed it. I did all my businessy stuff for it and it completely failed, completely failed. Um, and what I realized at that time was that the people who were contacting me were basically just looking to get rich quick. 
and they weren't actually looking to build something. They weren't actually looking to raise $10 million and then use those funds to build something of significance. They were just looking to grab money. And I, that's not the way I operate. I'm not in the business of scamming people. And so uh, that, that lasted approximately four months. I had enough phone calls to realize, oh my God, what I'm getting into is not good. And so it never took off, never did anything, never made a penny from it, from those efforts. And so that was kind of my real like first experience um, in crypto because for me, experience is I am kind of have that coder mindset, which is like I have to build something to learn about it. And so my next step along that chain was this year, earlier this year, I did my first uh, NFT built an NFT, you know, launched it just to see the process. Um, I did it actually as a favor to a guy I follow on Twitter. He put out a tweet one morning and I was having my cup of coffee and he tweeted, hey, I, I want to raise money for um, this cancer center. Can somebody put my music, which is on SoundCloud, and make an NFT out of it and I'd sell it and donate the money to Sloan Kettering or whatever? And I just wrote back, yes, I'll do it. And I had no idea how to do it. And by about two o'clock in the afternoon, I had done all the steps, got the MetaMask, got the funds, got to, you know, built the NFT um, and said, hey, dude, here it is, man. It's ready to go. And he's like, ah, I already, uh, somebody built it in like 15 minutes for me. I already sold it. He made like four grand on it. for, And I was like, wow, that's funny and awesome. Uh, And, but that was great for me, right? It was like, it moved my ball forward. And so that was like me just diving into the space. That's how I got basically back into the NFT space because I saw it moving in October, November, December. I saw punks moving. I, I was aware of punks, aware of CryptoKitties. Didn't really understand NFT, the significance of it, how it all tied into to blockchain and crypto then, but I knew something was there. And so I, I did that first foray into NFTs, built one for myself, you know, just an idea. And then, but re- what really changed everything was there was a Mooncat rediscovery in the middle of March where this is a 2017 NFT project that was launched in 2017. They sold a couple of them or, or people claimed a few of them in 2017. And it had basically sit, sat there since then. And somebody rediscovered it and re- let it known to the Twitter sphere that, hey, these cats are there. All you got to go do is go claim them. And that day when that experience happened, I was like, holy cow, there's literally gold that was built in 2015, 16, 17 that's waiting there for me. And all I need to go do is find it. And if I find it and then I tell people about it, they're going to be happy. They're going to make money. I'm going to make money. This is amazing. Let's go dig. And that's what I've been doing for like the last eight months. Well, so you said that you know, you initially tried to get into the coin space and found a lot of people engaging with that space in ways that you were uncomfortable with. It sounds like the NFT space has been a different experience for you. In what way was it different and and why do you think that is? Well, I think actually it's very similar. It's very similar. You see a lot of um, what people are calling projects happening right now, which are basically avatar projects where people are releasing 10,000 you know, whatever it may be, turtles, monkeys, apes, what have you. And most of those I consider money grabs. Most of them are, 
How can I convince enough people to buy these from me? So in that way, it's very much similar. It's very much similar. Um, and the buying is from a, a place of, uh, you would say, greed, right? I can buy it at a dollar and I'll sell it at $10, right? There's nothing wrong with greed. The, the reality is greed actually gets people to work, gets people motivated. If there was no money to be made in the NFT space, the NFT space would not exist. Let's be completely clear, right? So it's actually a good thing. And from my point of view, this this driver of money or the ability to make money brings money into the space and actually allows people who want to build stuff to actually build stuff. And so in that way, uh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Of course, 1 million percent people are going to get hurt. People are going to lose money. Guaranteed. It's inevitable. But these are the systems that we build as humans. There's no way around that. There is no way. The only perfect way to make it so nobody loses money is to not have the system. Um, and with that, nothing's going to get built. And so there is inherent risk. There's a lot of money to be made and there's a lot of money to lose. And I tell people, you know, you know, cause a lot of people will, I get hit up every single day. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? What should I buy? What shouldn't I buy? You know, you got to use your gut. Uh, everybody's different. Everybody has their own unique set of circumstances for buying and selling stuff. Um, and uh, it's somewhat of a crapshoot. It's somewhat of a gamble, very much a gamble in the space right now. Um, but what I'm really trying to focus on for myself and for people who follow me or read my stuff is to kind of lay out this history with the view that in 20 years, I truly believe NFTs will be looked back upon as kind of what I call a tip of the spear. This is the real beginning of a crypto revolution. And what's happening right now, I think people will look back on and go, wow, that was quirky, but really historically significant. And so my view has been find these old projects because there aren't many of them, bring them to light, and then just buy and hold and hold them for 15 to 20 years. I think they're going to be tremendously valuable from a collector's perspective in 15 to 20 years. But I tell people I could be completely wrong. They could be absolutely beanie babies and nobody could care about them. You know, maybe the NFT space doesn't develop. Maybe the crypto space doesn't develop and it never reaches the potential that a lot of us see. I disagree, and, but I could be wrong. You know, so I let people know that I could definitely be wrong. <laughs> So you mentioned like really starting to get especially interested when you saw the kind of rediscovery of the Mooncats NFTs. Did did you see right away what about them made them especially interesting or particularly valuable? Or was it something like specific to that project or just the time in which it was made? Like at what point did you start to realize that the kind of NFT archaeologist project that you've described was a potential way of, you know, engaging with the market in a economically productive fashion? For me, when I saw the date, like the date that the Mooncats were minted on or, or launched on the blockchain, and it was before CryptoKitties. So CryptoKitties, from anybody, if you're, this is the first time you're hearing about NFTs, CryptoKitties are probably the most important NFT project ever. CryptoKitties basically let the world, it was successful. It was the first really successful project. Of course, people will say, oh, punks, punks sold out and stuff. Yeah, but it was basically the friends of those guys who bought all the punks. CryptoKitties hit 
like people, people in the crypto space bought and sold CryptoKitties. CryptoKitties were a thing. And when Mooncats happened and we realized, look, this is earlier than CryptoKitties. It just kind of connected at that point. Like, wait, this was before that. And so I don't know what it was, but literally that day, I knew that this had value because CryptoKitties, I mean, they were CryptoKitties at the time. They were trading for tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And so I knew immediately that, look, these are going to hold some value. Don't know what it is. And trust me, when I, when I on that particular day when Mooncats were rediscovered, I literally tweeted at the dude who, who, who released it. And I said, man, because the gas was like $50 to claim each one. And I said, you know, is gas going to be worth it? 50 bucks, Oof, you know? And he just hit me back. He's like, do your own research, <laughs> which if you're in the space, this is kind of like a common thread, right? Um, which is like, bro, you got to make your own decisions, right? And um, and so there's a funny story around Mooncats and, and how that happened with it. But um, for me, that was just like, that that solidified it right then that they definitely were worth more than $50, right? And so it's just a question of from from that moving forward, how can I find ones that are like Mooncats? And so I went forward with that model and that model's changed over time quite a bit. Um, but that model with Mooncats, which was like a website that worked, you could see the NFTs you were buying. You couldn't necessarily interact with that website. Uh, you might have to use the smart contract to actually do the buying and selling. But that they were there, you could see it. Like that kind of model was the model I had for the next like two months of trying to find projects and kind of relaunch them to the to the current market. Well, so you've cast a really wide net looking for any kinds of older projects like any good NFT archaeologist would. In your experience, is the level of interest determined entirely by the the kind of the data creation, like the provenance, as it were, of the NFT uh, collection in question? Or does the nature of the project affect the desirability in the marketplace? There are a bunch of different factors. It's, it's, uh, date is important. Like that's, if you're looking on a lit, like a checklist, date's number one, but date's not everything. Um, also how it's going to be received by the market. So if, if it was, I'll give you the kind of the top down example. The best example would be a really, really old by a famous artist who put it on there and just left it and forgot about it. That would be ideal, right? Second from that is something that's relatively rare. So still has that date, but then doesn't have much supply, right? The things that a lot of people made back then, they would have a billion, 10 billion, right? Because it was like this coin pro a lot of people were thinking of it just like with the ICOs where they do 20 million of something, right? So what you have is you have a lot of projects that had these kind of huge numbers as well. Uh, not a lot of projects, but you had projects that had these kind of huge numbers. And what's actually happened now, while in March, April, and May, I would have completely passed on those projects. What's happened now is we're getting back in touch with these developers who built those projects back then and getting them to basically burn part of their supplies, right? So you go from a 20, 20 million, and like I had a guy recently, he went from 20 million to 200, right? He had the age, he had the historical significance, but he had 20 million. It was unmarketable. He burnt, you know, 19 million, whatever it was, to bring it down to 200. Well, guess what? Now these are super valuable. Now they're $50,000 each, mm -hmm. right? 
So working with the developers is something I've been able to do to help them strategize for relaunch, basically relaunching these projects into today's marketplace to create a desirable um, collectible, basically. So when you're engaging that process, you know, when you're doing your digging, as it were, what is your what, what does that look like? Like, how do you find these projects? Where do you look to find information that'll help you identify projects that will be, you know, a potential good investment of time and energy that you think are going to be interesting? And, and what do you do uh, yourself in the process of sort of facilitating the transition of those projects from the kind of the state that they're currently in into something that can go on the market? Sure. Well, it's, it's changed over time. Uh, back in March and April, uh, I was literally using Google Google search and Reddit searches, and I was I was doing much more broad kind of swath searches. Um, that's moved from that to basically exploring the blockchain itself. Um, to now that and that was kind of maybe through June, July, August when I kind of rediscovered like Pixel Maps was one one of my big rediscoveries. That was just literally blockchain exploring. So exploring the blockchain itself, looking for projects of a certain date. Um, and now it's moved to like actually creators of these projects are literally reaching out to me now. So they'll reach out to me and they'll say, I have this. And we'll begin walking through what they have, um, what we can do to correct the projects uh, to make it palatable for today's marketplace and then relaunching projects. So it's moved kind of over time. Um, where I don't do any like looking on the blockchain anymore. People just contact me uh, with the projects now, which makes it a lot easier. But then at the same time, much, much more difficult because what I was doing in March and April was basically I just make a tweet, you know, to relaunch a project. Now it's like I have to, it's like I'm back in business school, right? This is like I create, you know, basically marketing and launch strategies along with you know, business development, we have to change these projects around and, and strategizing how the best way is to move forward with the projects so that they make sense to people, right? Telling the story, how are we going to tell this story? Why is this story significant from a historical perspective? So it's, it's doing kind of all this work, which is a lot certain, certainly a lot harder than the old days, which was basically me sitting in front of a, a, a Google search for, you know, 12 to 15 hours a day searching. Um, which was the old days, which were fun, um, but just a different, a different experience. And, but with, with that, like even back then, um, a lot of it was finding projects and there were a lot and actually figuring out if the project is workable. And that has come with experience. You know, now I have eight months of experience figuring it out. Because there are oh, almost always challenges to the project itself. And so figuring out those challenges and figuring out if we can overcome them, uh, it's kind of my specialty. That's kind of where I'm just bringing all this years of experience doing businessy type stuff. And, um, and so that's kind of one of my strong points is, as to just being able to figure out how can we take these pieces of something that's historically significant and, and, and fix it for today's marketplace, um, which isn't always easy. <laughs> well, so what kind of features really kind of factor into that calculation? Like what kind of problems are fixable and why, and maybe what kind of problems sure. aren't so so fixable? Yeah. So, so the, the simplest one is what I tell people is back in 2015, 16, and 17, 
early blockchain, every almost everything was a Ponzi scheme. And what I mean by that is they were literal Ponzi schemes or, and not Ponzi schemes in a, and I don't mean to say it in a way that it was somehow underhanded. These were agreed upon Ponzi schemes. People were literally, so you got to understand people who were using blockchain back then were basically all developers and techies, right? There's no normies uh, working on Ethereum back then, right? So it's all devs and, and techies. And so they would put out something like, hey, put in one ETH. And if somebody else puts in one ETH too, then you get 20% more and this sort of thing. So you have all these ones, which were basically uh, you buy something, it would immediately, the contract itself would immediately relist it for 20% more. And then somebody else could buy it. And then it was automatically relisted for 20% more than what they bought it for. So there are so many of these, it's more than half, more than half of the projects we find have those sort of mechanics built into them. Um, and those are very hard to overcome, if not impossible. Some are impossible to overcome. Most are impossible and most we pass on that are, that are like that. And so a lot of it is I have several developers I work with. And so if I find one, I kind of do the preliminary investigation, then they'll do a deeper dive into the contract itself and tell me of any kind of hidden things that might be wrong or not be wrong or what we can do with them. And it's, so it's figuring out first that kind of base layer. And then other things after that are, hey, can we get this on OpenSea? So a lot of, almost all of these old projects can't show on OpenSea. OpenSea uses a set uh, software, basically, you want to call it, to people who don't really know much about it, but a set software package. And that software package simply can't see these old NFTs. So what we have to do is build basically a, what's called a wrapper, which I explained to people. It's kind of like a software box that holds these old, these old NFTs and mi- lets them move around the internet. And so OpenSea can see that wrapper. And so with these old projects, sometimes you can't build a wrapper form. Um, and so we like, I give an example of like pixel map where I had found pixel map and the two devs I had originally shown that contract to, said it looks cool but it's never going to go on OpenSea. it didn't have a transfer function built into the contract and because of that it makes it near impossible to build a wrapper and so i had a couple devs were like you should pass this is a no-go um for whatever reason what it was basically for me was i loved the date so much it was 2016 it was the first project when we relaunched, it was the first project from 2016 that was rediscovered on Ethereum. So it's, you know, a, a big win for me and historically significant. So I pushed it forward and with the idea that, oh, well, we can just build a trading platform to just buy and sell itself, right? So kind of like um, CryptoPunks has their own trading system. You can actually trade on their website. We can build that. It's never going to be as successful as having it on OpenSea, you're basically limiting it, limiting it to a very small market. But I was willing to do that just because it was historically significant. Uh, and by grace, after we launched and rediscovered, I had a bunch of other devs reach out to me and say, hey, there may be a way to fix this. And there may be a way to build a wrapper. And basically, I was able to put kind of two separate developers who had pieces figured out together and together, those two guys actually filled out, figured out how to build this wrapper, which many people thought was impossible. Uh, 
And so that was a, a huge win, huge win for uh, the owner of the project, Ken, and for the project in general, because it allowed it to get on OpenSea. It's open to a much wider um, market and audience and just builds this idea of historically significance for that project because just a lot more people are going to know about it. So kind of those challenges, that's what I do is I, I kind of am able to put people together along with have my own knowledge and stuff and, and figure things out. You know, this is what, this is what you do. You figure stuff out and uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in this, this wrapper element. So is this something that the market for NFTs sees as being, I guess, kind of like as transparent to the underlying NFT itself in the sense that it's created just for the purpose of accommodating it technologically to the kind of existing market and the way people transact in NFTs. Yep. I think it's, it's become, um, and there's, there's a bit of controversy around rappers in that if rappers don't accurately represent the old contract and the old NFTs, people give people, some people get very upset with that, uh, which I totally get. People want, many people want the, the rapper to 100% accurately represent the old contract. Totally understand. But this is how blockchain works. Like you could make a rapper today for CryptoPunks and you could rap CryptoPunks right? Is anybody going to interact with your wrapper or care about it or give it any value at all? Probably not, but that doesn't prevent you from doing it, right? So it's this kind of, there's this this interesting gray area that's going to have to be explored in not only in the NFT space, and it's going to have to be explored and people are going to have to, you know, battle out what they think is right or wrong or what have you. And um, I've run into it several times uh, just to stay on this pixel map um, thing very, very specifically so you can follow along. But we built this um, wrapper for pixel map and it worked and had it on OpenSea and all this sort of stuff. And uh, Ken was doing, Ken, who's the, the developer and founder of pixel map, was doing like a giveaway to, to help, you know, just to bring more people in the community, give people tiles, whatever. And a guy in the Discord won, you know, I don't know his name, Joe Smith. Joe Smith won. And Ken's like, hey, Joe, send me a DM so I can send you your pixel map. And somebody made a fake Joe Smith account in, in Discord. So it looked the exact same, but it wasn't him, a fake one. And sent Ken a message like, hey, Ken, here, send it to my wallet. And Ken sent it. He didn't like super verify that this was the right dude. So that dude literally stole a tile, right? And Ken, having access to the wrapper, the wrapper for Pixamap allows him as the developer to not change anything that's on chain. So not change the original contract at all. But the way the wrapper interfaces with OpenSea, he actually has the power to repoint the URL that creates the image on OpenSea. So it's only the way the wrapper shows to OpenSea. Okay. So it doesn't change the underlying contract. Underlying NFT is still there, untouched. He can't, he literally can't do anything with that, but he does control that wrapper. And he said, what should I do? I said, look, change the image to say, this is stolen. Don't buy and sell this NFT, right? And he did that. And in about an hour, the guy who stole it, put it up for, 
put it for sale for basically the same price that Ken was kind of giving it away. So Ken got the, basically gave it back to Ken, uh, to put it simply. He basically gave the tile back to Ken, to the NFT back to Ken. And that is something we got so much pushback on just doing that. So we weren't changing the underlying NFT at all. That was actually impossible. But we were using the wrapper to modify the appearance of the NFT. And there were a lot of people that pushed back very hard and said, don't do that. That's not what we want in the space. We don't want even the appearance that these NFTs can be changed by a centralized authority. Very interesting. Brought up an interesting point. And Ken actually made that decision at that time to not do that again. Um, and this is, but so that just kind of points out a way in which, you know, these kind of things need to be figured out by people as a whole and as a community. And the only way to do that is debate and, and fight it out and people will figure out what the kind of best way forward is. So there are a number of examples of these kind of issues with rappers. That's just a real simple one. Um, and there is no like guaranteed best way forward. It's just a kind of, it's, it's still so early and new that people have to figure this stuff out. But it seems like a lot of these concerns go to kind of the concept of authenticity within the NFT space. Like in your experience, how do people in the market, or I guess by extension, the, the market sort of as a sort of autonomous whole, how does it think about authenticity and value of particular NFTs and what the markers of authenticity are? In other words, what kind of things make particular NFTs feel real and valuable to the market as opposed to what kinds of features might make the market wary or reject something entirely? Yeah, it's that's super complicated. (laughs) There's no like, there's no um, easy answer. The thing I'd say when you're talking about like art, because uh, art's the easier one to break down. When you're talking about art, it's which one does the artist say is the one? And so this is an interesting question, and I'll give you one example. So artists began putting their art on Bitcoin in basically twenty late 2014 into 2015. And this is an interesting thing. So there was this company called Ascribe that allowed artists to put their art on Bitcoin in a relatively easy manner. That company went out of business and basically shut down. And if those artists didn't have control of those Bitcoin assets, they're basically lost. Uh, Many of those artists have now reissued that art on Ethereum, right? And created brand new NFTs. It's the same art, but it's a brand new NFT on Ethereum. I'm working with a bunch of developers and I've actually had the founder of a scribe on my podcast. Talk to him. He's super helpful. This guy named Trent, super helpful, awesome dude who's actually helped myself and my devs basically re-spin up an Ascribe interface that allows artists to actually access those old Bitcoin NFTs. So what happens now, right? If somebody bought one back then, and then somebody else bought the new one on Ethereum, which is the real one? Who owns what? Right? This is a very, very complicated situation, right? It's very complicated. And so um, 
you know, I've talked to several artists who, uh, including um, Harm from Left Gallery, Jeffrey Allen Scudder, these guys who all had kind of pieces on on Bitcoin, and and it's uh, it's challenging, and they realize they're at a they're at a challenging point, and some have decided to basically burn the newer ones and give the or or give the option to the collector to burn the newer uh, version in order to receive the older version, right? So that's a common kind of thread which gives the kind of provenance to the original piece. Um, but it's complicated. And there's no like simple, oh, this is the best way. It's a complicated situation. So in the art space, I think, you know, kind of what the market has decided is which one the artist says is the one is the one. That's kind of what we're at now with with provenance. Um, and it gets even more complicated when you start talking about just the collectible space. And because m- there have been numerous projects now where people have found older contract versions of a work. So I'll give you one example. Uh, there's one called CryptoCats, which was released kind of just, just before, right, right around the same time as Mooncats in 2017. And these guys initially launched their, their cats. And there was only like 12 and they, they, they migrated those 12 to a brand new contract and released like 600 cats. Okay. The thing was before they launched those 600 cats, they had launched two previous versions of that contract. Okay. In 2017, this was actually quite normal. People would put up a contract as like a test and then, you know, 10 minutes later, put up the real one just to see if it worked. Today, we would do that all on testnet. But back then, the prices and everything was like, well, why do it on testnet? I'll just do it on the real. I'll do it on mainnet and see if it works. And these, so, but, but from like a historical perspective, these are interesting because they're literally the exact same NFTs. They were just done 15 minutes earlier. So which is the real one? Which is the right one? Uh, exactly. It gets very complicated. In that case, the dev... Basically, the developer basically said, no, those old ones are illegitimate and I don't want any part of them and has done everything to block um, them being on OpenSea or being on any trading platform and basically crushed them from kind of being out there on the market. Um, But other devs have done the opposite where it's like, oh, yeah, those were earlier. Let's call them something else like the, the rediscovered and create a larger community of holders. And actually go th- forward in this kind of more open, like, yeah, gosh, we, we really screwed up and did those earlier contracts. They're there. They're legit. There are real contracts. So there's kind of this split in the communities of there's a grouping of people who are like code is law type people. And then there are others who are lean more towards, well, what was the original intention of the developer or the artist? And we'll go with that. And then there are all these people in the middle who are just trying to figure it out. And nobody has the exact answer. Um, and so it's, it creates this interesting dynamic when it comes from a historical perspective. And when I'm looking for projects now, it's one of the first questions I have for developers. And I literally tell them, go back. You might not remember right now because this was six years ago, but what I want you to do is I want you to take two hours and I want you to go through everything with the intention of finding other contracts you launched, even if it has nothing to do with this contract. I want to know every contract you've launched because coming from that and knowing all the different contracts that they've done, 
allows me to be transparent when I relaunch these things and tell people, hey, look, there were all these other contracts. This is what they are. Don't buy into them. They're broken. You'll lose your ETH, whatever they are. Because if you don't do that now, what ends up happening is people will find them now because there are enough of people like me who are looking at this stuff. People will find them and it creates confusion in the marketplace and we don't want, we don't want to have confusion in the marketplace. So it seems like with a lot of these early NFTs that you're kind of fi- finding in your archaeological studies, as it were, the the value is driven by a sort of natural scarcity in the sense that there just weren't that exactly. many to begin mm-hmm. with. Exactly. I wonder what you see going going forward as being a future market because you mm-hmm. talk about a lot of projects kind of getting put out there as like a kind of pump and dump type scheme. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. but. Is there a space or, you know, what do you kind of foresee as the future of projects that don't have to rely on that kind of almost accidental scarcity? Sure. Uh, it, 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 you, you put it rightly, the accidental scarcity. It, from my whole perspective, it's, it's, it's impossible to recreate, right? Going forward, you could launch a project today. I could launch a project today. There's going to be basically infinite amount of projects. So how do those projects hold any value at all? And it's most won't. I truly believe most will not. The use cases of NFTs and NFTs going forward, how we use them and build them and how they're going to be used in music and art and everything. Art is literally just the start. How they're going to be ingrained into every aspect of our lives. That's where it's going. So not not NFT is like one picture that I put on Twitter as my avatar profile, but NFTs of everything, all digital assets, right? That's the way it is going forward. I mean, that we're even going to call them NFTs is probably not accurate. We're going to, I mean, what it's going to be is something completely different that I can't even envision right now that you can't envision that literally nobody on the planet is going to envision where this goes. We all have these ideas, but these ideas are wrong. Because the stuff hasn't been built, which actually is going to move us in a direction that, trust me, nobody on the planet understands right now. In the same way that nobody understood on the planet that you and I would be talking right now on other ends of the world, and you'd have live shows or shows, and you'd be a a content producer, and you could have a YouTube channel. Who would have thought you would have been NBC in 1995? Zero people on the planet. Zero. Like nobody on the planet. The same will happen with NFTs, crypto, and Web 3.0. It's the same thing. And we're all guessing now about metaverses and AR experiences. And I am, I'm super excited. But I li- and I have a vision, but I know my vision is going to be completely wrong. It's going to be wrong, right? So, but going forward, all these, so, so sorry to give, I, I went on my rant there. But so in that way, the the value of these old projects because there are so few of them so few i mean i'm looking at like a chart right now of like you know 2014 there's like five in 2014 right that that kind of scarcity where there's like nothing there there's only a handful uh from a collection standpoint i just look at it and go wow this is amazing well so what one thing i've noticed that's kind of an interesting phenomenon and i'm sure you know you've noticed this too is like you know a lot of people, as you say, are kind of valuing these historical NFTs because of their scarcity value. 
but it seems like there is an additional kind of value that's getting invested in at least certain categories of NFTs where they almost seem to have more of like a branding, like a personal branding value. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on that. Like what's happening there? I think it's actually, it's the, this is the thing that's made NFTs really, really pop, right? It's this, it's a combination of crypto trading. Um, So trading, there's always kind of, if you look back over the last two decades or whatever, you know, it starts with like stock trading and then people maybe move into, um, you know, commodities trading or, or whatever. And then it moved into crypto trading. So there's always been this like group of traders, but this like takes that and puts it on the level where community is created in the trading environment. And that's, I, I don't know if anything's ever really happened like that before where we're trading board apes, right? And I, yeah, buying and selling, making money on it, but it, it literally becomes part of you. And I no, I can't explain it to people. It's hard to explain to people who haven't experienced that, but like my avatar on Twitter is a lazy lion, right? I just bought it because friends of mine bought it. Friends were like, go buy some. We're buying some. Let's buy some together. Let's get in together. And that sense of community that's created when you move into a project like that, and then the project rises and you're still a part of it, right? The the price goes up and whatever they are worth now, I, I don't even care. But I do care that, you know, 10 of my friends still have lazy lines and I'm still talking with them and we're still talking about how awesome it is. Right. And so this, this communal nature of this trading has really driven it. And so if you, if you remember what happened with like GameStop and stuff like that, um, people maybe discount the community nature of that. Yeah. It was about stick it to the man, but it was also like, Hey, I'm a part of this. This is something that I'm a part of. And People don't really talk about that too much, but that is this idea of community, which we throw around in the NFT space. It's a big deal. It, it is a big deal. And it's really hard to do well. Um, it's re- When people are like, which project should I buy? I say, look, it's really hard to create this level of community. Most people are in just to flip and get money and make money. But at some point, these projects reach this communal nature where for you to sell it is going to be painful for you. The money is going to have to overcome this pain point of you losing that community. And I know a couple of people who have sold punks, you know, in the last two months and made literally millions of dollars off those punks. And they had the hardest time selling. It was physically painful because they had so associated with that community and associated with that image of that punk on as their Twitter profile and their avatar, that it was like you, they were literally cutting off their arm. And they did it because they made a million dollars and it was going to impact their life and their family. And their, you know, it, it, was, it was a big deal. But trust me, if they had 50 million, there's no way they're selling that thing. They only sold it because it was the money was more impactful than losing that sense of community. And um, yeah, that aspect of it is really hard. I don't know where it's going to go in the future. I really don't know. But for right now, it's it's pretty powerful and it's kind of a new model. Um, Almost like I I can't, as I'm thinking back, I'm like, what other things had this kind of sense of community where you buy into something and you're kind of tied in? 
And kind of what I'm thinking of is like professional sports almost. Like my dad bought New York Jet season tickets in whatever, 1969. My brother still holds those season tickets, right? And he's, trust me, he's debated giving them up and the Jets are terrible and it's nothing but painful, right? But then again, we're still Jet fans, right? And giving up that aspect of ourselves um, is hard to do. One thing I've noticed about the NFT market is that because of its kind of very technological nature, it's a lot more liquid or liquid at all than other kinds of arguably similar markets in the past. Do you think that liquidity from a kind of a business perspective is important in terms of the development of the market? I think uh, I think it's actually, I would take the opposite view. I'd say it's liquid when it's hot. And when it turns cold, it becomes incredibly illiquid. And especially with ones that are priced high, um, this is what I'm talking about when I tell people about like a potential crash. The crash will happen so suddenly because of the illiquidity. And what will happen is just all of a sudden you can't actually sell one of these avatars. You can't sell it. And so what happens when, no, when you have no buyers, right? The, the, the crypto and, and NFT community is still so small. It's so tiny that if it, if it, when it turns, it's going to turn very quickly and yeah, this is what I try to warn people against because I've seen this happen before uh, with much larger markets. And this market is so small that if it turns illiquid, um, well, I mean, you've seen it even in the last month. We've seen, I don't even know, 60, 70% correction in some of these projects and it hasn't rebounded yet. So it may rebound. And we've seen this. I mean, this is the kind of crazy thing in the last eight months. I've seen this happen five times. Right. And each time I'm in like, oh my God, here we are. Crypto winner. Right. But, but each time it's bounced back and bounced back crazy. Um, so I don't know if this is the bottom or this is the, you know, slippery slope to zeros for a lot of these projects. Or if, you know, Coinbase gets their act together and launch a platform and open up the crypto community from realistically now, there are probably under 200,000 people who own an NFT in the world and open it up to 70 million new people. Uh, if that happens, who knows? We could run another, we could go 100x from here. It's possible. Um, or it could go to zero. <laughs> you know, who knows? Honestly, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Well, Adam, I mean, few people who I've talked to have kind of thought as much and as deeply about the market and how it works and have such a kind of refreshing degree of agnosticism about the future to the will, to the extent that you're kind of willing and feel comfortable making predictions. What do you, what do you see in the near future, both in terms of sort of interest in NFTs and the kinds of projects that people are likely to be interested in, in sort of the next phase as it were, to the extent there is one. And, and maybe what do you see in the future? Sure. I think, uh, I actually am incredibly bullish right now. Um, I think that we're onboarding and I'm bullish because of what happens in my personal life. And my personal life is I'm getting hit by friends who are in co from college and stuff who are like, how do I buy some of these NFTs? How do I buy some of these NFTs? Right. And I'm literally, I've created like a Google doc for like step-by-step. -step. Okay. Go here, buy a hardware wallet, go here, download MetaMask. Right. So literally walking friends through the process 
so in that way, I'm incredibly bullish because these guys are, you know, 50 something years old with money to spend. Right. And so I'm incredibly bullish. If Coinbase is able to pull off their NFT platform, and there's certainly no guarantee that happens, but if they're able to access NFTs or allow access to NFTs for their user base, uh, I think there could be an incredible run on NFTs. Incredible. And I know a lot of people in the NFT space are betting on that. You know, I am too, because I, I do believe that can happen. Um, if that ha- if that does happen, there'll be an incredible run. I'm I'm excited to tell stories of of you know the historic NFTs and and educate people on them because you know when I, I was just you know we were talking earlier, I was just at the NFT NYC event uh, in New York, and you know it's funny because that event went from 300 people two years ago to God knows how many, 10,000 um, over the last week. And, but as I'm talking and I met, you know, 50 people while I was there, the number of people who even knew something as simple as, hey, there were NFTs on Bitcoin was a handful of, so of that 50, you know, a handful, five, maybe 10, even had heard about what I'm doing, had even heard about historical NFTs. So even within the crypto space, Hardly anybody knows. So in that way, uh, I just tell people, man, we are so early. And if you believe what I believe and we create this together, meaning we educate people about these historical NFTs, um, we are potentially in kind of one of these, you just catch it. I I look at it as like, I I think I'm catching something once in a lifetime. This is like Bitcoin at their two bucks. Because if if I just buy it, and literally lose the wallets for 10 or 15 years. This could be what is a $100,000 or $200,000 investment could be 20, 30, $40 million. That's how bullish I am on it because I I do believe that um, the space is going to explode exponentially. But I could be wrong. (laughs) But where where it goes in the future, you know, I mean, realistically, what happens with these projects and what comes in, uh, there are certain low-hanging, what people are calling low-hanging fruit, which would be like the easiest one is the music space. The music space is completely ripe for disruption. I'm trying to help companies, you know, do this, um, which is basically create NFTs for artists where artists can use the NFTs as like funding mechanisms rather than going to a label, getting money. And doing it that way, you can do it through NFTs. You can pass ownership rights of the music to the holders of the NFT. So literally the fans become the investment vehicle for uh, musicians. That's super exciting. But then expand that to literally every business, every loan, every everything on earth. That's what NFTs can be. And we just have to build it. It's that simple. It just has to be built. So I'm excited that if more money comes into the NFT space, what you have is more people basically getting rich in the NFT space, and then they will look to invest that money in the NFT space. And you get this kind of virtual circle, which happens where then the stuff that I'm kind of excited about actually gets built. And that just requires time, effort, and uh, developers, you know? 
Well, so Adam, in, in closing, um, I came across you at least in part because of your, your book, which you wrote with what must have been lightning speed, given <laughs> the, the nature of the story that you're telling. But I found it really helpful in understanding sort of what you've been doing and in understanding sort of your perspective on the space. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the book, what it means to be an NFT ape yep. and, uh, and where people can find it. Sure. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, if you just punch in NFT ape, you'll see it. Um, really, I just wanted to document like the last six months. Um, I'm a writer kind of by trade. And so for me, it was just about getting it down. Um, kind of, you know, I, I'd advised enough people in, in kind of my consulting work to like write a book because I think it plants a flag. And I just wanted to really just be like, look, this is a little bit of my vision of the future and understanding that I'm probably going to be wrong, but this is my kind of vision of what crypto and NFTs are. And then tell a little bit of the story about some of the rediscoveries I've done and kind of some of the people I've met and my, my kind of impression of the community, which has been almost universally positive. It's been amazing. And so just kind of, you know, tell that story a little bit of, you know, give people an idea of what's happened over the last six months from my perspective. So that was kind of it. Just, just kind of giving this little bit of a snippet of what I've done. Um, and writing it was just people were like, when's your next one? I'm like, uh, hashtag never again, man. Cause it's brutal. It was, it was brutal. Um, but you know, just to get it out there and, and, um, and let people kind of experience a little bit of what I've experienced in the NFT space uh, and give people a kind of a taste of the future. That's, that's what I'm trying to do so that, that people can understand like what started with Bitcoin and has now moved to Ethereum and all these other blockchains um, is really about uh, at the core, it's about freedom and people talk about crypto and don't really understand what crypto is. And, this idea of decentralized and what what we can de decentralize if we choose to, if we choose to as people, and it's our choice to do it or not, but the technology is there to make a fairer, more distributed world if we want. And that's the beauty of crypto. And almost nobody understands it yet. And we're at the babiest of baby steps but I couldn't be more excited to be a part of, of this beginning. Well, Adam, thanks for writing the book. Uh, and thanks for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you. And I learned a lot about the kind of the history of this still really new marketplace. So I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Great having me.
Ain't that the singing cat? He was so cute, but he sang flat all night. He'd meow and meow till the break of day. Each night beneath the moon, the cat would croon so out of tune, but still he'd meow and meow in a merry way. The people screamed cause he meowed. Couldn't sleep, he sang so loud Someone hit him with a great big shoe Right in the middle of his I love you Take that, the singing cat He disappeared and that was that And now folks can sleep, sleep and sleep Till the break of day Ding, that, the singing cat He was so cute but he sang flat all night He'd meow and meow till the break of day Each night beneath the moon The cat would croon so out of tune But still he'd meow and meow in a merry way The people screamed cause he meowed They couldn't sleep, he sang so loud Someone hit him with a great big shoe Right in the middle of his I love you Ding, that, the singing cat He disappeared and that was that And now folks can sleep, sleep and sleep Till the break of day Meow, meow, meow till the break of day 